Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, I am excited and frankly, a little bit nervous because my guest is a professional journalist. Jane Ferguson is a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour a contributor to The New Yorker and the author of the upcoming book, No Ordinary Assignment, which will be released in July. Her prior experience includes time at CN and Al Jazeera and her reporting on war, uprisings, humanitarian crises, and other geopolitical events has taken her all over the world, including to Afghanistan, Brazil, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, the UAE, Ukraine, and Yemen, among others. Jane was born in Northern Ireland and briefly studied in the U.S. before returning to the United Kingdom to study English literature and politics at the University of York. Her unique and fearless style of journalism has earned her a number of industry awards, including an Emmy, a George Polk Award, an Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Award, an Aurora Award for Humanitarian Reporting, a Peabody Award, an Overseas Press Club of America Peter Jennings Award, and a Gracie Award. Jane has previously been based in Abu Dhabi, Beirut, and Kabul. She currently lives and works in New York. Jane, welcome. Thank you for agreeing to do the show. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so I am an amateur podcaster, and you are a massively talented professional journalist. I'm not sure which one of us should be more worried about how this is going to go today. I'm not a podcast producer myself, so I couldn't say I know much about the technology, but yeah, I can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Well, let's dive in. When did you actually first decide that you wanted to be a journalist and how did you decide to take the path of reporting from some of the most challenging places in the world? I definitely knew very young as a kid that I wanted to be a journalist. I'm not, I couldn't point to exactly one specific incident, but I did grow up watching the news and reading the news. And I grew up in, I'm a classic example of someone who grew up in a really small town. In fact, rural area. I was outside of a small town. I would have aspired to the, to live in a town. So I grew up in the middle of nowhere on a small farm and the rest of the world just had such a lure to me. I had massive wanderlust from a very young age. I grew up, newspapers were big in our house, as was the evening news. So I knew I wanted to travel. I was rather obsessed as a youngster with stories of adventurers and travel writers and those, you know, especially female writers and travel writers like Dame Freya Stark or Gertrude Bell, who worked as a diplomat. And so I knew I wanted to work internationally, but I was also exposed to the sea a lot as a kid. That was the voice of the world. And the BBC was one place where there were a lot of women on air traveling around the world. I had role models to look to in the evening news. And there weren't a ton of female professional role models growing up in rural Northern Ireland. So that was one area where I saw women traveling. And that really interested me that they were able to travel around the world and and talk to newsmakers and leaders and regular people all over the world. I think another thing that really shaped me in retrospect is the fact that I did grow up in Northern Ireland. And I grew up basically in the very, very last Protestant village before you get to South Armagh and the really wild IRA heartlands in the 80s and the 90s when I was growing up. Those were, it was a time of extraordinary instability, 
But when you're a child, everything seems fairly normal. I think as I started to grow up and realize that there were a lot of questions I asked that weren't being answered about sectarianism, about checkpoints that we had to travel through, about Mm -hmm. bombs going off. I think it's no coincidence that I spent a lot of my career embedding with, studying, reporting on insurgencies. As a little girl, it seemed strange to me that I couldn't quite understand how otherwise peaceful people, whether they were farmers, bakers, taxi drivers, could be inspired to acts of great violence. It was something I think that became fascinating for me as a little girl, perhaps subconsciously. And I ended up traveling around the world trying to answer some of those questions. You started in Abu Dhabi, right? With CN? In Dubai, yeah. And so I got a job at a newspaper. I was actually a business journalist for a little while. It was the first paying job I could find in journalism at an English language newspaper in Dubai. And then and then CNN opened a big hub, like a huge office up in Abu Dhabi, which had a studio and its own show. Yes, I got in my car, I drove up there and I just did everything I could to persuade them to give me a job. They gave me a freelance contract in the end. Yeah. So you were already there. I was wondering how you decided to start there of all places, coming from Northern Ireland, having gone to uni in in, in England. I actually got there via Yemen. So I went to university in England. And then after university, it was really hard to find work. It was absolutely my year at college. Like we were struggling so badly. My best friend from college now, she's the West Africa bureau chief for the New York Times. But Ruth was the editor-in-chief of the student newspaper, and we won all the awards, the Guardian Award every year for the best student newspaper. I was a news editor for a while there and and writer, and I think we all just presumed we would end up working at the broadsheets, or I knew I wanted to work in broadcasting, and I always dreamed of working at the BBC, but the financial crisis that had hit right at the time when internet and advertising were really damaging. So the fall of advertising and the internet, the rise of the internet was really damaging the industry. So we all ended up scrambling to try to find somewhere to go. I tried to find work and I went to Yemen to study Arabic actually at a school. I had started studying Arabic in college, just taking classes and trying to just, because I knew it would be helpful for my career. This was 2007, 2008. So I I knew the Middle East had always fascinated me my whole life. And that was where much of the foreign news was coming out of Iraq and the wider region. I went to Yemen to study Arabic. And then when I basically ran out of money, (laughs) I, I needed to get a job. The only jobs going at that time were in Dubai because Dubai had not yet been impacted by the financial crisis. So that's how I made my way there. And I'd always intended to live in the Middle East anyway. So this was that was the path I ended up taking. One of your, you mentioned Yemen, one of your first big stories, I think, was the Houthi rebel incursion into from Yemen into Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Arabians response. And you were reporting that from within Yemen at the time, right? That's right. I've been reporting on the Houthi insurgency since long before it became a global story. It was late 2009 when the Houthis were rising. They had been having periodic uprisings against this Saleh government for quite some time, but this was the latest iteration. In 2009, it was the first time they incurred into Saudi territory. And the Saudis were sending jets, fighter jets across it into Yemeni territory. So it was becoming more of a regional war, but it was still totally hidden away in the north. So that was my first ever television piece was to to drive up there towards the front line and, and to talk to witnesses who had fled their villages and, and get, gain footage from Houthi rebels of some of the fighting as well. And and I just, it was all sort of enterprise reporting and I sold that story to CN and that's how I got started there. But nine years later, I ended up back in Yemen after the Houthis that actually within those nine years, massive amounts of history happened. There was a revolution. The Arab Spring made it to Yemen. Ali Abdullah Saleh, the dictator, had been pushed from power. Then the Houthis had swept down from their homelands in the northern mountains into the capital city, taken over the entire north of the country. And the Saudis had launched a Saudi-led coalition to try to oust them. So that included a massive blockade of all Houthi-controlled areas, which is where 80% of Yemenis live. Mm. So that blockade included journalists. So it was very hard to get in. It took a lot. You were working, as you said, as a freelancer. I mean, were you literally doing these assignments on your own? Did you have a crew with you of any form? Did you have any bodyguard or any other kind of support? 
In the very early days, it was all non-commissioned. So I was going, I would have conversations with my boss at CN or the boss at CN, who was a, who had become a friend and mentor to me, but he wasn't in a position to commission. And basically that's when a news organization takes ownership of you. And right. essentially we're talking about insurance, so we're talking about liability. Right. And so I was going completely by myself. Usually, whether it was, I would either hire a local a cameraman or I would often film my own work. Like I spent a lot of time covering the, the conflict in Mogadishu, which was very much so undercovered. The mm. fact that there was another battle for Mogadishu to push Al-Shabaab, the main militants of, Mog- of, of Somalia, out of the capital city in 2010. And I would be covering stories like that and small Al-Qaeda offshoots in Yemen and in, in Sudan and in the Sahel. And I covered those mostly filming by myself. So one man banding. Those were the very early days of my career. From around about 2011, end of 2011 onwards, everything was commissioned when I started singing my career. So it's been a long time since I've rolled up somewhere on my own dime, but that's how I had to get started. Yeah, it's, it's really bootstrapping in general. And you were doing it in some very difficult places to have worked. I was. I was part of that new, like myself and my colleagues that, that did that in the early days, 2008, 9, 10, before the Arab Spring, we were really part of a very new wave of young foreign correspondents who were freelancers, who the networks were using and the newspapers and the broadsheets were using because after the financial crisis, it just became more common. None of us places had hiring freezes in place for a very long time. So many young people who couldn't get in just moved to Beirut, to Cairo, to to Amman, to, to, to Damascus, and started freelancing. Now, there was a bit of a pushback against that. I would say the war in Syria really started to turn the tide because many were getting kidnapped and killed. But mm-hmm. in the couple of years running up to that, it was becoming more common. And we were the first young journalists going out doing enterprise reporting by ourselves. When you were in those early days and you're in Sudan and you're in Somalia and you're in Yemen, how much time were you actually spending on the ground there versus back in Abu Dhabi? Much more time at home base than on the road. Mm. Mostly not by choice, but by expenses. You're effectively trying to stretch and stay as long as you, you possibly can, but you're also paying for drivers and hotel rooms. And, and I would get insurance per day, which would be Medivac insurance that you can organize through through right. various organizations. All of it very expensive for a freelancer. If I was on the road, probably 10 days every two months, because it does actually take weeks and weeks to plan your trip because you're planning access to something important. So you definitely spend a lot more time at home doing edits afterwards, post-production or pre-production, setting everything up. And CNN would support you in terms of facilities to do that part of the work? They did for the edits. I came home from a, from South Sudan and they wanted a story. Then yes, then they would assign an editor to me and support like getting the raw footage to the final product and getting it on air. So that, that would be whenever they would come in. Yeah, but essentially you are an entrepreneur. Yes, effectively you're running yourself as a totally self-employed person whenever you're doing that. I was registered in Dubai was a good place to be because you could register with the media city, as they call it, which are these sort of free zones where you can register as a professional entity. And it's and there's a, it's there are tax breaks and you can access various facilities that are helpful for small businesses. And obviously, as a hub, I can fly anywhere in the world within mm. nine hours. So it's pretty incredible. But yeah, you are essentially working as a small business. Yeah. And as you say, hiring cameramen or camera crews or whatever and paying them out of pocket and taking all the risk in that and hoping 100%. that you can tell the story. Yeah, definitely. And trying to figure out like your vendors and who you're working with and what their budgets are and how much you can, how much, how long you can afford to stay somewhere. And there is risk. If you don't get the story, you don't get paid. So that was probably, there's financial risk to what you're doing as well. Yeah. How did you choose the particular angles that you chose to report on? I my angles were were in those early days were very much so leaning into undercovered stories and part of that was just my own curiosity I was fascinated by stories that weren't being covered but a lot of it was also necessity I was a kid who didn't have a reputation and a host of awards well known name in journalism so I wasn't and I also was freelance so the networks were always sending, or the cable networks were always sending their own star staff correspondents to places like Baghdad and Kabul. 
And if you, I learned very quickly that if you go to the big giant stories, you're much less likely to find work because you know there's no need there for you. The competition is too vast. And so I started covering undercovered stories. I, and as a result, it ended up being something that I was so fascinated by anyway, and that had more meaning to me. Going to places like Somalia and covering conflicts like Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen, which at the time were conflicts that nobody was covering. It interested me. I was also interested from a regional perspective of what was happening geopolitically. It fascinated me covering the small Al-Qaeda offshoots. As Al-Qaeda was coming under massive pressure in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were trying very much so to franchise in places like Yemen and Somalia and, and the Sahel, the African Sahel. And whether or not they were going to be successful at that would have huge implications for U.S. foreign policy and national security. So that also interested me. You, you moved over to Al Jazeera a few years and what prompted that move? I was basically, my had, part of it was just logistics. I had a boss at CNN who had been giving me a contract and buying a lot of my work, and he ended up moving over to Al Jazeera too. And, but I, the context at the time in the industry was the Arab Spring. So it was the very end of 2011. The Hosni Mubarak had been removed from power in Egypt, which it, while the whole world watched, the whole world hadn't sat and watched a story from the Middle East like that in decades. I was really intoxicated by the Arab Spring because I'd spent, and by that stage, plenty of time in the Middle East, getting to understand the young populations, getting to understand the geopolitics, the changing, the changing kind of, I would say, demographics. And there was a sense of hope. And Al Jazeera were, at the time, Al Jazeera English, were far and above beyond everybody else's coverage from many of these revolutions. And so it everybody aspired to work for them. Remember at the time, like getting colleagues from CNN calling me saying, how do we get in? Is there anything open at Al Jazeera? Because Al Jazeera English at the time was considered so cutting edge, mm-hmm. so bold and brave that, that it was an exciting place to be. So I ended up, but like I said, there was plenty of competition to work there. So it wasn't like I just wandered in the door. I had to find a story, as do most freelancers, that they couldn't get. So I ended up going to Somalia again, but this time to South Somalia. I worked with a journalist from the New York Times to get access to a specific warlord. I happened to know that Al Jazeera had tried for him and failed to get an interview with him. So I used that as a way in the door. He was the most prolific warlord in the South, and he had recently changed sides from fighting with the Islamic courts group to fighting with the Kenyans against that. So it was a, it was an interesting story. And then they were interested. They took the story, so they were happy with me on air. But then I also had to back it up by, by getting other access that they couldn't get. They were struggling to get access to Yemen before the Yemeni dictator Ali Abdullah Saleh had actually fallen. But when the protest movements, the Arab Spring was already in full it was already in, in full momentum, but hadn't succeeded yet. And I had a way of getting visas and getting into Yemen. So being able to get into Yemen, they then said, okay, fine, we will fully commission you. And that's when I became, for them, this firefighting, young, scrappy reporter who they would throw into some of the more dangerous stories during, as the Arab Spring became much more volatile and more violent because of the pushbacks. So they started using me in Yemen, started using me in the first correspondent for them to send into Syria when it started becoming a war. And that was like how I got started there. All right. So go back to the warlord interview for a minute. So how much of it is like in the Hollywood version of it, where you get blindfolded or shrouded and taken to some unknown place and all of that? It was, I would say, relatively dramatic, like crossing over from Kenya. You drive north. The Kenya-Somali border is not really a particularly stable or safe place to be. So that was pretty fascinating. We get to the literal border, which is like a little shack by the side of a wooden fence with some Kenyan soldiers in it who looked pretty nervous because that's a pretty rough spot to have to guard with just an AK-47. And we wandered up with our passports and they were pretty astounded that we're in the middle of nowhere. There's no tarmac road, just dirt and dust everywhere. It's very deserty up there. And you drive past what was at the time the biggest refugee camp in the world called the Dab, which is where many Somalis had fled just over the border into Kenya. You drive far beyond that and you're really in the bush and a desert with some scrub and you get to the little shack and we were coordinating with a fixer who was all, who was coordinating with the warlords militia. They're called the Raskambone movement. 
And we, they said they were waiting for us there. And when we get to the border, we can see them in the very far distance in a car, in a four by four. The Kenyans look at us like we're crazy and they stamp our passports in this little like tin shack. And we then put our hands in the air and walk across the border, walk across like just the sand, the red sand. And then the fighters literally, the Kenyans then duck back into their shed. The fighters drive towards us jump out of the vehicle, all with guns, and welcome us into the vehicle. And so it's just one of those moments in your career where it just mm. happens again and again, where you simply have to trust your contacts. You have to tr- you, you have to put yourself in an unbelievably vulnerable place because yeah. you have to trust that your connections are, are solid. So you get ushered into the car by some of this warlord's fighter, taken to meet with the warlord himself. What was it like interviewing him? Was he a personable guy? Was he just very hard-edged? He was very hard-edged. I think he was not particularly... You basically, you go to... There's an awful lot of sitting around. You get offered an interview, but you spend 98% of your time with their fighters at their camp. So they have a camp and you drive about another half an hour into Somalia. And then they have a camp there. At the time, this was 2011. At the time, the famine was starting to, to really bite in Somalia. So there were also truckloads of really destitute civilians coming headed south trying to make it to to those refugee camps in Kenya to cross over the border and then we were with these fighters and it was extremely uncomfortable for me I was very young very uncomfortable because these were fighters who had who most of their career had worked with Islamist armed groups some of them linked to al-qaeda these were really they, they were confused. Why was the boss inviting these two infidels in here? And so some of them were friendly, some of them decidedly not. It was also mm. the last day of Ramadan, the holy month of, of for Islam. And so they'd been fasting for a month, so they were a little bit hangry. And yeah. so I was very nervous around them, so there was a lot of waiting around. And then eventually he gave us an interview. Very often, these interviews are a little bit stilted by the fact that there is a translator. He was less charismatic than I expected him to be, less media trained, of course. He had never really done a lot of media, certainly not to English language media. And he had a message, which was basically, back me and I will get rid of Al-Shabaab. He was trying to take back his big money spinner, which was the massive Kishmeo port, main port city in the south of Somalia, which he had controlled. I mean, he was a very cynical operator who knew how to side with the Kenyans at just the right time. And so this was very much so a power play for him. So he had his own line. He didn't like it that when I brought up the word warlord, he pushed back against that a lot. Mm. So there's just always a little dance. You can't allow yourself to be intimidated, but at the same time, you also have to be careful. If someone decides that you're more valuable as a kidnap victim than you are as a as someone who's telling a story that they want to be a part of, then that's a dance that you have to somehow assess. Yeah, we just I interviewed him in a in a hut, basically a straw hut. And I think he was relatively impatient. I was relatively inexperienced. At this stage, I was 25, 26. I was 26 and I I was filming by myself. So I guess I was just doing my best. Yeah. And you mentioned, I think somewhere in just preparing for today, I read that you were back in Yemen having to report anonymously, I think by voice only because Al Jazeera had actually been banned from reporting inside the country, which must have been an interesting experience in and of itself. It was. That was the that was my first commissioned trip with Al Jazeera, where they sent me in and they knew I would probably either get arrested or kicked out or both if I if I showed up and said I'm Al Jazeera. I think some of my connections in Yemen or had already had presumed I was still going to try to sell stories to yet to CN. And so they called me our correspondent who were not naming for security reasons. That's how the anchor would introduce me. But it was ridiculous because, you know, everybody knew who it was. (laughs) Right. And so I would be like quietly editing pieces in my hotel room at night and like voicing them under my bed sheets with a good sound. And then (laughs) there would be like the local political security cops and like plainclothes intelligence guys in the hotel lobby. And I'd be off to protest. So there was this there was this strange, there were government workers who could see the writing on the wall, yeah. but didn't want to lose their jobs. So they were dancing around me and I was dancing around them. And it was a very funny reality. But I, of course, got an email from a friend in Afghanistan who said, that's so funny. I've been watching Al Jazeera and I wonder exactly how many women from Northern Ireland are in Yemen. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a mystery. Who could it be? <laughs> who could it be? Yeah. So, yeah, it was pretty funny. And 
I have to imagine the conversations with family back home had to have been uncomfortable in their own way. Why did you choose to do this as a career? Yeah, yes and no. I think that my family were very keen for me to succeed at what I wanted to do. I also think that sometimes, and I know other journalists experience this, like not everybody has a vast knowledge of what's going on around the world in a minutiae kind of a way of what's dangerous and what's not. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. If you say to someone, oh, I'm going to South Sudan, they have no idea that South Sudan is extraordinarily dangerous. Whereas if you say, I'm off to Afghanistan, they'll panic and be very nervous about you. So at the time, not a lot of people knew much about Somalia. Like they knew about Black Hawk Down and that was bad, but that's in the British psyche, it was less terrifying than in, in the American one. You were in Syria not long after that. You actually had to be smuggled into Syria. And then yeah, that, that, that's right. I'm not sure if any of your listeners will remember there was a very important moment in not just the Syrian civil war, Syrian uprising, but also the Arab Spring generally was whenever Syria was turning from a series of protests in 2011 into an armed insurrection in mm. 2012. And it was just a few weeks before perhaps perhaps your listeners r- remember when the journalist Marie Colvin was killed in Homs, which was in February of 2012. So at the end of January in 2012, I was smuggled across the border from Lebanon into Syria and on into Homs City, which was really the cradle of the insurrection, where it was beginning. They were starting to actually take neighborhoods, try to control them, try to hold off the regime. It was the very genesis of war in Syria, The really trying to persuade more units of the Syrian armed forces to defect to their side. And at the time, that's how anybody was getting in. There were these activists who had set up, like citizen journalists who had set up their own media hub in Homs, in a neighborhood called Bab Amr, And they were the ones who were filming everything, putting it on YouTube. They were going, many of them spoke English. They were going on the BBC. They were going on CNN and they were desperate to get word out because so much of the Arab Spring became about communication. It became about like getting the word out that this is what's happening because it's a psychological thing, isn't it? When you're rising up against a dictator and you're relying on masses rising Mm -hmm. up. You can't be an insurrection of 50 people. You have to be 50,000 people. So it's so that that was really their tactic. And so part of that, they wanted to bring journalists in to show them what was happening. So they were, they were, they, they I got to Beirut. I went back to filming by myself because it was just so much easier to smuggle in one person. Yeah. And I, How you smuggled in? I went, I was flown to Beirut mm-hmm. and then I was told to wait for contacts to come and connect with me. And so I had a meeting with them in the neighborhood of Hamra in Beirut, in West Beirut, in a cafe. And we discussed, these guys gave me names that probably weren't real. And we, we they said that they would drive me to the border, but I had to wait in my hotel until, until they were ready. And that's what I did. I got a call from them the next day. They show up in a SUV and we spend several days like actually making it in because we're driving country roads and staying in safe houses. And then in the middle of the night, just as the dawn was really coming up, the dawn light was coming out, I crossed over on foot with them across a field and climbed under a fence. And then on the other side of the fence, some Syrian, free Syrian army, as they were called at the time, rebels, picked me up and put me in a car. And I said goodbye to my guys who had transported me. And then I was in Syria and I was basically handed from one group to another several times until I got to, to the transit point to get into the city at Homs. And it sounds like once you were there, did you say they wanted the media attention? So you were, relatively speaking, welcomed, even though you'd been smuggled into the country? Yes, I was welcomed because they wanted me there. But also when I'm moving around, I'm going to a field hospital, I'm going to visit someone in their home, I'm going to the front line where there are rebels. I'm with those activist guys. So I'm like vouched for as far as I'm concerned, as far as they're concerned, I'm welcome because I'm with them. So and that's so much of war reporting, making sure that you're with, that you have an in, that people know who you are. You, you talked earlier about Arab Spring being a time where, you know, the whole of the world was really for the first time in a long time, really focused in on a story in the Middle East. What stands out most for you from that time in terms of the reporting that you were doing? It was such a huge moment of hope. I think that I think the saddest thing was how 
at the time, whether you were like wherever you were watching the protests, what I think we really wanted to communicate to the wider world was that this was young people. Like today, it's inspired by the uprisings and protests in Iran. They can see that they're really young. But what struck me was that at the time, it was even more so across the Arab world, an entire generation of young people, because the population, the sizes of families were huge. So you had this, you've got countries where the vast majority of the country is under 25 years old. And I think what really struck me was talking to young people who just genuinely believed and understood that they deserved more than the corruption that stopped them from being able to get a job when they got out of college. And so a huge amount of it was the ability to have dignified lives. So much of it was sold in the American press as they want democracy, but that was not entirely accurate. And it was also not really clear reflection of why, of what actually people wanted. So I would talk to young people who just wanted the state to, to get off their backs. Like they wanted to be able to make a living. The young lad who started all of this in Tunis, he threw that gas, he had been humiliated because he was trying to sell fruit. And right. some corrupt cop came up and said, you can't do that. And he said, how am I supposed to make a living? That was the last words he said before he self-immolated and began the entire thing. So I think like for me, it was standing in the streets talking to young lads, young women who were 20, 22, 23, and who said, we have no future here because the economic model doesn't work. The political model doesn't work. The social model, the ethnic model, the sectarian model, none of this works for us. We want better lives. We don't necessarily want to live in complete emulations of the West, but we want, we want a better system. And I think that looking back, it's always made me sad that those demands were the, effectively the absolute, the best way for them to describe what dignity is like them. So they didn't have, they could see their lives and they stretched out ahead of them. And they could see that the rot that was setting in and that had been setting in the governments in the Arab world was going to rob them of a decent life. Yeah. I mean, it's, as you say, it's just dignity, right? Ultimately, they just wanted to have something of a life, not necessarily the way that we think about it in the West, something that just allowed them to get by day to day. Yeah. There are all sorts of of implications that 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 we don't even think of. Like, for instance, in the Arab world, if you're a young man, especially in places like Egypt and in more patriarchal societies, like if you're a young man and you're unmarried, you're not really considered a man. And yet you need money to be able to afford to get married. You can't get married if you can't provide a home. And so many young men felt emasculated. You also had in Yemen, for instance, that was a place where you had this unbelievably well-educated population in the cities. So Yemen's always been an intellectual hub for hundreds and hundreds of years. But here you had young lads and young women with master's degrees who literally couldn't get a job waiting tables. You had expectations that these young people would pour out of college and then they would hit reality. And reality would be corruption, poverty, and just a whole lot of utter dysfunction. Yeah. Like slamming into a brick wall almost. Al Jazeera sent you over to Afghanistan somewhere around that time as well in your reporting from Kabul for a period. That's right. After Syria, a fair bit afterwards, I ended up in Afghanistan as their Afghanistan correspondent. It was the first time in my career I actually had a beat where I could like basically live there. I had an apartment in Dubai, but I was in and out. I would do six weeks in Afghanistan, two weeks out. Mm -hmm. And I was there from spring 2013 through to 2014. That was somewhere that that meant a lot to me. I, I was able to really work with the same team. We had an incredible bureau of Afghan staff, and it was this really important moment in, in history in Afghanistan, just as most of the networks had pulled at their people out and really wound down bureaus to save money because people were just not following the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. But this was another attempt by the Obama administration to draw down the war. There was a declaration of handing over the war to the Afghan forces, NATO basically completely stepping back into a training role. And what I ended up covering that year was the attempts by the Afghan security forces to take on the fight themselves. And it was massively prescient seeing them struggling, seeing them relying on U.S. special forces, which was not often reported on that, that they absolutely needed U.S. special forces. They needed reconnaissance, surveillance, and intelligence support. They couldn't really do that by themselves. 
And in turn, we also saw the Taliban starting to stand and fight. The Taliban for 14 years or for 13 years had largely been an insurgency fighting with insurgency tactics against a much more mighty enemy being the US military. So they would hit them and then they would disappear. They would melt away into the villages. As the Afghan security forces were taking on the fight, the Taliban were increasingly standing and fighting and engaging them. That was something we were trying to cover. In addition to this, the big story in Afghanistan was the run up to the 2014 elections. This would, if it went off well, the first ever transitional, the first ever democratic transition in Afghanistan's history, as Hamid Karzai came to his the, his, the end of his final his final term, and in the end, Ashraf Ghani won the election. But we traveled around the country and interviewed every candidate, and that was an incredible experience for me. Going to political rallies, and we would go to a rally for Dostum, who ended up be, becoming the vice president, who's been basically known as a killer and is wanted for war crimes. And we would go to his political rallies and they would just be these huge, massive rallies in the countryside filled with many men on horseback. It was really, really absolutely wild. And I must admit, one thing that was very helpful about working for Al Jazeera was that they had much looser rules around security than many of the other networks, for better and for worse. But to 28-year-old me, for better. I was able to go off around the countryside without needing armored vehicles, private security. Like I just went off with my team and I had incredible freedom to travel and work in the way that many of my colleagues at US and British networks just didn't. You did have a near-death experience though, if I have read correctly, takeover in a hotel by the Taliban. That's right. Yeah, I did. Uh, The Taliban were at the time doing these incredibly... military called them complex attacks against compounds, whether they were guest houses, offices of NGOs, or the United Nations or hotels. And I was in the main hotel in Kabul because my guest house, I had been moved away from the guest house because they were afraid of an attack. So I was moved to a hotel that they considered more secure but unfortunately the Taliban were able to access the hotel. They got into the to the hotel. This was in I believe March of 2014, the big attack on the Serena Hotel. I was in my room at the time when they got in and there were intense gun battles. I was very lucky that I was in my room. It was Nowruz. So it was the Persian New Year, which is what they celebrate in Afghanistan. So many people were in the dining room. It was a very special night and it was packed. And I was just living and working there and I was eating alone. So I figured I'd just go to my hotel room and order room service. And shortly after I ordered room service, I started hearing bangs in the hallway and shouts. And then it became clear those bangs were gunshots. So the Taliban was the first time they'd ever managed to get inside the hotel. They'd attacked it many times, but they would never, they'd never been able to get inside. I was just, it was just pure luck. And some of the Afghan special forces came in and and got me out of my hotel room and managed to get me out of, out of the building. Was that the first time you'd had that kind of experience, a literal life or death moment? No, it would have been about the second. Like, I think a lot of us talk about those of us who have done really risky work would make a clear distinction between feeling scared and doing something quite dangerous, which is relatively regular at that time in my life, as opposed to moments where you think, I really might not make it out of this. I think death is pretty close. Luckily, those moments are extremely rare and should be because they're a time where you realize that maybe you've pushed your luck. Getting out of Syria felt that way to me, trying to drive through regime checkpoints and being stopped at the border and just meters away from freedom by armed men who I didn't know who they were and had presumed they were regime intelligence guys. That was a very bad time for me, but also in in Kabul when the hotel got attacked. I think that did have a big impact on me. I My window wouldn't open. And it was one of those windows that would only open a, a little bit, like right. maybe seven or eight inches. And it was double glazed. So I knew I couldn't smash the window. I wasn't, I was for a long time afterwards, I would definitely test windows in hotels, walk around the grounds. Like I was hyper vigilant in hotels for a very long time about yeah. escape routes. So yeah, that was unpleasant, but I was very lucky, very lucky. Yeah. Just given everything that you've seen over your, the, your years of reporting, the the wars, the insurgencies, the uprisings, the humanitarian crises, like how do you not let that just like really get inside of you? Or does it? It does get inside of you. You do feel you feel incredible sadness sometimes. But I think one thing that 
is important for me to, I think it can feel particularly hard when you watch a country that you love really descend into the kind of into the kind of chaos that war brings where it takes generations to survive or to recover from that that watching yemen decline from when i was like that youngster out of college studying arabic i just think it's really sad to see it to see young people feel there's no future in that country for them anymore and they need to leave i think in many ways that has been the saddest thing on a big scale obviously there's horrible death and loss and grief in the moment but whenever you also think about the scale of things, that is what kind of knocks me off my feet sometimes. When the fall of Kabul was particularly hard for me to get over, I don't think I am. I don't think I'll ever get over that. The idea that there's no future there for an entire generation of young women is unbelievable. I sometimes struggle to grasp things like that make me very sad. But one thing I would say, though, as well, is that when we're reporting, <clears throat> there is a sense of, of people see what comes through our lens, our literal lens. And very often, because of the nature of us wanting, needing to tell these stories of people, there, there can be a misperception that it's just pure misery all the time. And the truth is that I just don't think misery is a sustainable state for human beings. And so we often forget that on the road, there are many moments of levity and there are many moments of normalcy. In it. And I say that with caution, people in refugee camps fall in love and get married. People tell dirty jokes in, in, at the front lines. People share cigarettes and cups of coffee and they manage. It's hard to describe exactly just how adaptable the human spirit is and how people do manage. And so I, I see an unbelievable amount of resilience. And a lot of people think that I, I I film violence, but I don't like I film courage. That's effectively what I have to what I capture everywhere I go. So I just see vast amounts of grit and courage as well. The human cruelty that I get to see is horrifying. I also see volunteer medics and I also see volunteer fighters and protesters and young people. And I see it. Mo more people trying to do good than do evil. Yeah, so I, I'm conscious of time. You know, we, you, I know, went over to PBS. You've done some writing for the New Yorker. You just you're drafting your book or finished drafting your book. What's the mix look like ahead for you now that you're you're based in New York and working from the U.S. Yeah, I jumped over not too long after the fall of, after the attack in Kabul. I st I started working the next year for PBS. And I've been there ever since. So I've had an unbelievable seven years of PBS reporting all over. And that's really been a, the main like mature maturation of my career covering stories for PBS. I moved to New York in 2020. I probably was literally the only human being moving to New York in 2020, but it was planned. But before COVID, I had been invited to teach at Princeton as a guest professor one semester. And, and I'd been planning to move over. I'd been living in the Middle East my whole life after college. So it was really, I was really ready to move and, and be a bit closer to home base of most of the broadcasters and started writing for the New Yorker. And I, so I moved here, COVID got in the way a little bit, but not mm -hmm. too much. I was still able to travel and work, but I took most of 2022 off after covering the fall of Kabul to write my book. I had to come back from Bookley for a short while to go to Ukraine shortly after that war broke out. But generally speaking, I have been traveling vastly less because of writing, which is an incredibly in intense, challenging, but very rewarding experience. I love to write. So I really relished taking the time out. So my book is now finished. I just finished the line edits and just sent it off to the uh, publishers. We've got, it's actually going to be out for, it's going to be in, in stores in July of this year. I keep saying next year, but it's 2023 now. So I need to catch up to myself. And so this year is very much so going to be about hopefully getting back out on the road and then a ton of book promotion, which I think will be a big sort of new experience for me traveling around. And, and I think that I'm really looking forward to that over the sort of spring and summer. What are the stories that you want to be covering as you look ahead to this year? If, as, as much as you can predict where the stories will be. As much as we can predict. I think what I'm, look, if you could wave a magic wand and get me anywhere in the world right now, it would be Iran. The, the protest movement there, what's happening there is not only inspiring and important but the implications of 
the fall of the Iranian regime across the globe, not just the Middle East and the region, you know, what this means. I lived in Beirut for six years. What would this mean for Hezbollah? What would this mean for Israel? What would this mean for Yemen and the Houthis? It This could be one of the biggest stories of the Middle East since the invasion of Iraq, and perhaps even bigger. And then also on a personal level, the, insp- the inspiring young women who are risking their lives there, they deserve to be on air. And so I would love to be able to go in, but right now, obviously, it's just not possible. Yeah. I'm watching very closely what's happening in Israel with the new Israeli government. I think that we've already had massively increased violence in the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank. And that is, I think, only going to flare up even more. I think what, whatever's going to happen in, in Israel-Palestine this year is going to be pretty significant. I'm also, I, it's with a heavy heart that I keep watching Afghanistan, what's happening to women there. It's just, it's hard to believe that whatever's happening in Afghanistan is in any way sustainable. The, the food crisis is pretty significant. There are peace talks on Yemen constantly ongoing, starting and stopping and starting and stopping. So there's a little bit of hope for some light there. But yeah, there, there are plenty of stories that, that that are fascinating. I've actually been, been getting into covering Latin America a little bit more. I've been to Brazil to cover the elections, which was fascinating and interesting. And that is a real inflection point for Latin American politics, geopolitics going forward. So that's really worth a watch. And I had been, I was fortunate enough to go into the Amazon. So I cover issues of deforestation, really understand it, talk to scientists, talk to researchers, talk to indigenous communities. That fascinates me. So I'd really like to continue on that beat. Yeah. How long were you down there? We were there for about two weeks. Yeah. We were covering the politics from Sao Paulo, the first round of the election. Right. So it was pretty thrilling to go to those political rallies. And we were very much so aware of a potential for political violence. And I was showing up to these rallies with my gas mask. And really, we had check-in times with our foreign editor and rendezvous points, and we get there, and it, it it was so peaceful in the end. I know that it's early days, but it was much better than expected. And I'm not used to saying that in my line of work. It was very nice to be standing there drinking a caipirinha in the street and like chatting with people. However much the, the election results may have disappointed some, there was no violence, which was really encouraging to see. Yeah, other than a little bit about the last well, since week. Then, yes, yeah, since then, we've seen the scenes in Brasilia and we've seen the strikes by some of the truck drivers, whether or not that foments into a seriously formidable movement that c- could threaten democracy is really unclear, or whether it simply becomes a particularly noisy, flamboyant opposition is really going to be the big question going forward. For somebody, the way that you broke into the industry was obviously very unique. But for somebody who wants to be a journalist, what advice would you give them in terms of trying to break into the industry at this point? I think it it varies depending on where they are in their career. I would say that the most important thing for me, for wanting to be an actual journalist and an international journalist, is not follow the crowd when it comes to the story. I walk the streets of Kiev right now, and it is jammed with reporters, which is wonderful. That's a massively important story. What's happening in Ukraine has enormous implication geopolitically. But if you're trying to build a career and you're really young and you're very inexperienced, go somewhere else where you have something that can actually contribute to stories that are not being covered. Whether or not you're going to cover migrants in uh, trying to make it to Greece from Turkey, or whether you're off in Africa covering in any number of countries in Africa covering stories there. So I would say very much to try to find something original and untold that is that's the best way in. And then the only other thing I would say is whether you're in print or TV, but much more so in TV, it's unfair. It's subjective. It is incredibly difficult. And I write about this a lot in my book. It's incredibly difficult to navigate this wild industry, Mm. which doesn't know what it wants a lot of the time and has very little openings. I would say the only way to stay sane and just to keep moving forward is to be massively wedded to your craft. Be the best writer, be the best filmographer, be the best producer. Just really strive to improve your actual craft as a reporter rather than trying to rely on contacts and openings and the interpol- interpersonal politics of the industry, which is a huge part of it. But no no one, be undeniably brilliant at what you do. No one can best you on that. We've talked a little bit about your book. What book have you read in the last 
year or so that has particularly influenced you? Oh, that's a good question. I read a pretty brilliant biography of Angela Merkel that that has done, I'm pretty sure everybody's heard of it. It was by Cathy Martin. I think it was released last year, but it was, I just read it last year and it was really inspiring reading about Angela Merkel's life and her stoicism and her, the challenges that she faced that were just on the surface, unbelievably insurmountable. And yet the level, the way she approached life and massive diplomatic challenges with a certain degree of moral, moral kind of fiber that she had. And she has had this set of values that she sort of stuck to, which you don't see a lot in politicians. I really loved that book. I also read a novel, which I do not make nearly enough time to read fiction. I read a novel called A Constellation (laughs) of Vital Phenomenon. So the novel, A A Constellation of Vital Phenomenon by Anthony Mara is is set in, in Eastern Europe and it's about it's a it's it's fiction, but it, it's set in war, and it is basically it, there, it, it's Chechnya and rebels that are rising up, and an unbelievable amount of repression that's going on. It's about how individuals survive, and I've never read a piece of fiction that captures mm-hmm. individual characters caught within dictatorships and crackdowns and uprisings and an incredible amount of brutality and repression. It sounds horrible, but the book is surprisingly uplifting and defiant and brilliant. So I, I absolutely love that book. I'll have to check it out. This no has worries. been great, Jane. I could listen to your stories all day. I really appreciate <laughs> you doing this and appreciate your time. No problem at all. I absolutely loved it. I, it was a great chat. Yeah, thanks, Jane. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Bye. It was great having Jane on the show today. Appreciate her joining me today and discussing her incredible experiences as a foreign correspondent in the Middle East and Africa and Southwest Asia and other parts of the world. Catch her reports on PBS NewsHour and in The New Yorker, and be sure to read her upcoming book, No Ordinary Assignment, when it's published this summer. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.